For those that have been at Hills at any point over the last few months, you'd know that we've been reading through the story together. And it's this wonderful resource um, which uses the scripture organised chronologically to present the high-level overview of God's hand at work right throughout time. And we've learned that God's redemptive plan for his people didn't actually start with the birth of Jesus Christ. Actually, that was his plan all the way through time. And we've seen, and we've seen that at work through the Old Testament. It's been an awesome revelation. Last week, the story finally crossed over into the New Testament. There's no cheers there. I'm kind of cheering in my head. I'm, I'm really excited. For me personally, I love the history and the revelation of Christ throughout the Old Testament. But I love the gospel accounts. And in the next five to six weeks, we'll be looking deeper into Jesus' ministry as told to us in the gospel. That's exciting. All right, I'm not going to ask, please don't raise your hand. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But, but I'm going to suppose that some of us, you know, maybe 20-something weeks ago, we, we entered this series full of gusto. There was a big stack of books over there. Uh, the story, you can get them for 20 bucks, and we're all going to go through a reading plan together. 15 minutes a week is all it was going to take for us to read, but over time, you know, maybe we missed a week, and then maybe we missed another week, and, and, um, and um, you know, it's been hard now to try and catch up. Well, this is not like, I was just trying to think of analogies, this is not like a marathon where we have people at the checkpoints making sure that you're, that you're running every stage and not just jumping in at the last moment. And so I want to invite you that if you, if you did just, man, you left a couple of weeks, you know, you dropped a couple of weeks and all of a sudden the, the story's gone on and it's just been overwhelming for you to catch up, jump in at week 23. Come back in, jump on into the marathon. No one's going to pull you up. <laughs> um, and, and come with us all the way through to the finish line. This is a good time. Actually, we secured a few more copies of the story this week, thankfully. There's five extra copies at the back there. So um, first in, best dressed. They're 20 bucks each. All right. Before that inspirational team rally, uh, we were talking about the gospel. And, um, and is there anything better? Literally first-hand accounts of God on earth living among his people. Because it's his example that has transformed our lives and sets the course for all of the other books to follow. As I read this verse in John chapter 1, verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. I've got a little bit of FOMO right now. kind of wish I was a disciple. But, um, you know, at some point, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John had to stop writing and start doing. But I'm really thankful for what they did write. Because the Gospels reveal the heart of Christ through the way that he loved and the truth about Christ, you know, who he is and why he came. And thankfully, it makes it sufficient for what we need to be discipled. Last week, we looked at the birth of Jesus and we used the events of the story to teach us more about the approach of seeking him. Our need not to just wait for him to come to us, but to get on our camels like the wise men and seek him. 
And we do this by being in the Word or in prayer or fellowshipping together um, with fellow believers. And some of you are like, did he just say get on our camels? And that kind of makes sense if you watched last week and you can do that on the Hills Church Facebook and YouTube channels. This chapter is called Jesus' Ministry Begins. And now we're following through the early stages of Jesus' ministry. And just as last week we came to the point that as we're intentional about seeking God, he speaks to us in different ways. And in different ways he calls us into ministry. He calls us all into ministry somehow. And so, so now what? This week as we look at Jesus, that as Jesus begins his ministry, there are some hallmarks which show us firstly how he ministers. You know, the intentionality of of who he ministers to and when. Secondly, what happens as he ministers. And third, the obstacles in his ministry. So, who's ready? To learn about Jesus' ministry. Come on, who's ready? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are with us. Lord, thank you for your example. God, help us to learn from it. Amen. Amen. That's all. As I read through the chapter this week, I couldn't help but think about season one of the TV series The Chosen. I've, um, I've mentioned this story before, uh, sorry, this TV show before, and if you haven't seen it, seriously, do yourself a favour. There are some creative liberties taken, but this show does the best job I've ever seen of presenting the humanity of Christ, but but, um, it does not diminish the divinity. We see both. And thanks to the church worldwide, it's 100% funded, crowdfunded, which means that we get to watch it for free, which is pretty cool. All you need to do is Google it and watch it. And so... um, You'll love it. The first season of the show preludes his ministry and and as he calls his disciples and then sensationally finishes in the season finale um, with the woman at the well. And and he publicly declares to her that, yes, he is the Messiah. And I don't feel like I'm spoiling a TV series because we've all read chapter 22 this week, right? Um, But um, I think I've got a map just to to show where we're at. Um, That comes up. You beaut. First of all, there we go. So you can see um, Samaria in the middle, right in between Judea and, um, and Galilee. And, um, and there's Cana and Nazareth and all of those up, up at the north. Well, can we keep that up for a little while? First of all, most Jews travelling from the south to the north would often go around either by the sea or inland a little bit, but they would... They would um, they diverge away from Samaria. First of all, the Samaritans were not considered worthy of God. For those following the story over the, over the last several weeks of the Old Testament, after the kingdom was torn in two, it wasn't long later that the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. And they intermarried, and they even, um, they even had their own religious ideologies. They created their own, um, their own religion. And so the Jews considered the Samaritans half-caste, half-breeds. And so 
Not only had they broken Deuteronomic law, gee, that's a word. They'd broken the law of Moses, should have said that, but they defiled the Jewish religion. And so the Samaritan woman, and we're going to go deeper into the story of, of Jesus at the well. The Samaritan woman was considered an outsider because of her race to the Jewish people. Actually, this Samaritan woman was an outsider in every sense of the word. She's an outsider because she was a woman. Women were not allowed to study the word of God because they were considered intellectually inferior. It's certainly not my belief. I'm a Wesleyan after all. (laughs) But the point stands that this was the sentiment of the day. Rabbinic law meant that only men were allowed in the inner court of the synagogue. And not only that, but the gender separation of the Jewish culture meant that men were not to converse with women in public. The point is that she's also an outsider because of her gender. And lastly, she's even an outsider to her own people. The shame of five divorces and now living with a man who was not her husband, that would form her identity amongst her people. She is, she's that girl. The reason she's made the trek to the well in the heat of the day and not the cool of the morning like everybody else is because she's actively trying to avoid everybody else. This woman is an outsider to the Jews, to the Samaritans, to everybody. And let's contrast that story to another story that we read in the chapter this week. And it's a really interesting guy, Nicodemus. He's a very well-respected man among the Jews. For starters, he's a man. That gives him a start. Secondly, he was a Pharisee, a legal and religious expert among the Jews. And lastly, John tells us that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 Pharisees and Sadducees. And they were local elites. And they comprised the Jewish judicial and administrative body. These guys ran the country, the Jewish part of it anyway. This guy, Nicodemus, was an insider in every sense. In a culture where young boys were brought up studying Jewish law for years, they'd look to him and they'd aspire to be like him. He's like a rock star in his country. In the meeting with both people, the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus, though, Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. But I want to illustrate my first point today in the way he ministers to both of these people, to both the outsider and the insider. The first point is that Jesus' ministry was inclusive. Let's go deeper into the woman at the well story. In John chapter 4, So Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw draw water. And he told her, go, call your husband And come back. I have no husband, she replies, of course. 
And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you, are ne- you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Yeah, we mentioned before that this a woman's identity was formed in the shame of a failed marriage. And she wears it every day. But Jesus acknowledges here in this story and as he's talking to her that even though he is fully aware of everything she has ever done, her entire story, he still invites this woman to be a true worshipper of God and adopt her into his family. Give her a new identity. Even though he was aware of everything that she had ever done. She then runs off to tell, to tell the town about this man. He told me everything I ever did. And subsequently, many Samaritans entered the kingdom of God that day. Let's contrast this story to Nicodemus. He's a really intriguing person. The confusing thing to me about the Pharisees, particularly towards the end of Jesus' ministry, is that regardless of the fact that they witnessed these amazing miracles, the stubbornness is almost unbelievable. How can you deny that Jesus is who he says he is when he's doing what he's doing? But Nicodemus doesn't seem to be as blind as the others. And in John chapter 3, in the dark of night, and to avoid the shame of association with the man Jesus, he seeks him under the cover of darkness. And we read about it uh, from verses 1 to th- one onwards. Now there was a Pharisee, a man, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless... They are born again. Now to Nicodemus, who is literally an expert in Mosaic law, in the law of Moses, Jesus says to him something that he will get straight away. (laughs) He speaks right into him. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then famously, in verse 16, Jesus says to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus impacted Nicodemus so much that he was one of the two men who buried Jesus after his crucifixion. And so I just want to make a sub-point here on number one, that the depth that Jesus knew about those he ministered to strongly influenced the way he ministered. The depth that Jesus knew about those he ministered to strongly influenced the way he ministered to them. If you're wanting to spread the word of God at work, Do you know your colleagues personally? If you're serving in ministry here at Hills, let's say on the worship team, for example, 
how well do you know those you're ministering to? Who are you sitting beside today? Building deeper relationships, you're making phone calls, knowing one, each other, knowing one another, and seeing the depth of your ministry grow. I think once again, there is intentionality in the way that John has ordered these two stories in his gospel. Jesus met Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And he successfully shown us, John, that no matter if one is at the top or if one is at the bottom of the social, religious or economic ladder, Jesus is the only way to live. The very demonstration of Jesus meeting all people from the outcasts of society to the upper echelon of society shows us there is no one outside the love of Jesus Christ. And therefore, and therefore, we have no right to choose the easy way and disregard those who find it harder, who we find it harder, sorry, to minister to. That's a challenge. We've got no right to choose the easy way and disregard those who we find it harder to minister to. As Jesus went about his ministry, so was the power of Jesus on full display. This is something that struck out to me, that struck me throughout this chapter. The miracles of Jesus can't be separated from his message, from his ministry. And the second point is that Jesus' ministry was authenticated with miracles. This part of Jesus' ministry is incredibly exciting. And it's these things that he did that validated and confirmed that he was who he said he was. It brings power to the gospel message. And we, we just read it from Nicodemus when he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Um, three years ago, in 2019... I was watching, went back and recalled a series that Nathan, Pastor Nathan took us through titled Signs and Wonders. The series was, um, was guided um, through a doctoral dissertation and resulting book of a guy called Stephen Elliott, who was um, a Canadian Wesleyan Methodist pastor. And the, the book was titled by Signs and Wonders. And the inspiration behind that title was from Romans chapter 15, where it says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. Now, through careful scriptural foundation and extensive statistical analysis and research, Stephen was Stephen Elliott we're talking about here, was to discover that the more open the church is to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, the more likely they are to experience miracles. That's interesting. Conversely, churches that do not expect miracles will not likely see them. The premise had a, had a pretty evangelical bent to it, as did the, um, as did the sermon series. And not only throughout the Bible, but in more recent history, the presence of God and miraculous works of the Holy Spirit on display contributed to unprecedented growth of the church. Now, although he could present supportive evidence to that point, he observed 
particularly the Western Christian church, that as our resources expand and capability to evangelize through our friendships and our lifestyles, all of these things, they grow mostly through a vastly more connected world. Hello, social media. We're still seeing the Christian church decline. And as Stephen writes, and he writes this to the Northern American church, I feel it can be directly applied to the Australian context as well. He says, I am convinced the North American church does not lack knowledge, mission, or conviction. What Christians lack is the power to be successful witnesses. For too many years, we've relied on human skill, advertising, creative programming, and human persuasiveness rather than the impetus of the presence of God's power. Now, it was a surprising series um, because it's not typical, not typical message you might hear in church. I've been, I've been coming to church for some time and I can probably count on one hand the number of series I've, I've heard speaking on the, the power, the miracles of, of, of Jesus Christ. And maybe it's because it can be a divisive topic. Some of us might have prayed earnestly for a miracle and maybe God hasn't answered the way that we might have liked or the way that we might have asked for and so we've shied away from asking God boldly for the miraculous and then we focus maybe on more the things that we can control I'm only supposing here I suppose last week we were talking about the evidence of God working through his upper story which revealed in the fullness of time, even when our lower story seems messy. He's still working in that upper story. And that's really comforting for those in that situation who have asked for that miracle and it hasn't come their way. We know that God is still working for you. It's comforting for me, even when I don't see it. One of the observations that Nathan made in that series was that the growth of the church didn't depend on talented people, thank goodness. It depended on the powerful presence of God. And this is evident in Jesus' disciples. Those he called to the important task to carry on his ministry after his ascension, none of them, from what I can tell, were gifted or remarkable from their society's standard or point of view. I don't want to be misunderstood because I'm not going to knock the contribution of human skill or advertising or creativity because I'm a worship pastor. I love those things. <laughs> but I'm also actually not going to discount the power of friendship and lifestyle evangelism. I do all of these things as I think we all should. But what I am saying is that the power of God far and away trumps anything that we can do in our own right, anything we can do in our control. We are called to embrace the power of God. Nathan did warn in his message three years ago, though, and I think it's probably wise to, to reiterate that let's not let the miracles become our obsession. Rather, continue to focus on the miracle worker. 
Jesus Christ. You know, one of the privileges of receiving connections cards is that I get to um, share them with the pastoral staff. And together on Tuesday, we pray over those things that you've written down in your connections cards. And it's awesome. We see, we see amazing breakthrough. And um, over the last couple of months, we've prayed for someone who had received a breast cancer diagnosis. And God answered on the following consult. Further testing revealed there was no breast cancer. That's amazing. We prayed for a young child who had a leukemia diagnosis and God answered. And the following consult revealed there was no cancer in the blood-forming tissue. That's amazing. We prayed for someone with stage 3 cancer in their diagnosis. And upon the next consult, no cancer could be found. Just in, just in two months. Now, you could suggest that the doctors misdiagnosed maybe once. And my research indicated that 10 to 20% of all cases of cancer are misdiagnosed. But twice, and then three times, in the space of a few weeks, it's really hard to argue. <laughs> Praise God for his signs and wonders. For those that know my sister's story, um, contained in a hospital bed, paralysed for weeks, suffering from Guillain-Barre syndrome, and one night as her health deteriorated, and she was reliant on machines pumping air into her body to keep her alive. Many were praying that night for a miraculous healing. And she slipped in and out of consciousness. And that night was a turning point for her. While in that intensive care ward with just her and the ICU nurse, a third person appears in that ward, a heavenly being. And comforts her. Jesus makes a... <laughs> Carly, sorry, makes a miraculous recovery. And in her words, I will never, in capital letters, I will never <laughs> forget that moment of being held and the peace he brought. And of course, it's a powerful moment, not just for her, but for this church. And God used that moment as well to prompt changes even in my own life. How good. That's just a glimpse into the incredible power of our God. But who wants more? Yeah, me too. All right, the last observation I made in this chapter is that Jesus' ministry was opposed by the religious leaders of the day. Maybe I should have just titled this this one that Jesus' ministry was opposed. <laughs> Last week, we learned about the obstacles that the wise men faced as they were seeking Jesus, and they had to overcome them. And we realized that um, we have our own obstacles as well as we, as we pursue Jesus, as we attempt to seek him. You know, we, we learned about, or you know, we were thinking about digital distraction. We were thinking about the shame of our own sin and how that stops us from going to seek Jesus. And as we read about Jesus' ministry, we see that hot on the heels of everything he does and all the miraculous things that he did, there were those who opposed him, trying to catch him out, trying to expose him, trying to ruin his ministry. And it's not just Jesus. It's John the Baptist 
It's every disciple. It's the Apostle Paul. You name it. All these examples of those serving in ministry, serving Jesus, faced fierce opposition. Because the life they lead is radically different to their cultural norm. I've worked in two workplaces over the last few years that, um, upon the introduction of a new leadership, underwent some sort, some sort of a cultural transformation. So um, basically the idea, and it's not uncommon, basically a new leader, often a CEO or, or whatever, comes into an organisation and then they evaluate what's going on and then they make some changes. And the changes that they make are... are um, in order to try and achieve their vision and their purpose for, for that organisation. It's been positive in the long term. In both, in both instances I've been a part of, it was, there were really positive outcomes. Um, but initially, I remember during the change, there was incredible friction. Many would whinge about the boss. <laughs> many would... Um, many would... Um, directly violate the, the, the ideas and the, and, and the new ideas that he was presenting. And inevitably, some people left the organisation and others needed to drastically change, change the way that they worked in order to adjust. You know, as we're talking about John the Baptist and the disciples and Paul, these faithful servants lived their lives so radically different to the cultural norm, they experienced a friction on another level. But even so, they all achieved their purpose. They were still able to get it done regardless. Jesus fulfilled all the prophecy that was written about him. John the Baptist was famed throughout all of Israel as he paved the way for Jesus. The disciples successfully initiated this idea of church. We're here. Paul spread the gospel message to, to the known world at the time. Of course, there's much that we can learn about the way that we do ministry through these guys and Jesus' example, but there is no better example of how we respond when we're up against it or when we're antagonised or provoked than through Jesus' example. We can't completely relate to him in this way because... His opposers were out to kill him, but we feel it in many other ways, whether it's in response to others when we, um, when we spend several hours maybe here each week instead of you know, doing something else. Maybe it's the response to our decision to advocate for Christ amidst a change to a law which is just simply anti-Christian. Or maybe it's in our response to a decision not to participate in something because it contradicts our biblically-based views. So how do we overcome? Firstly, we begin in prayer. And we've just spoken about the power of the Holy Spirit. And so prayer should be our first response, to ask the Holy Spirit to guide our hearts, our minds, and our words in those moments. Secondly, we seek peace. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker in conflict. Whether it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, upon his arrest, or immediately after he feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And they're ready to force him to be their king. 
as they recognise him as their Messiah. But instead, Jesus slips away quietly, the, the scripture says, to the hills. Probably to pray. It's easy for us these days to ruffle some feathers. Whether it's a controversial social media post or something. I'm not saying here, you know, be quiet. If there's something important to say or sneak away to the hills rather than standing for truth. But I am saying to pray first and examine your motives. Is it a selfish motive as you share these things? Or is it God-honouring? The third way that I was thinking of how to overcome adversity is just simply to love more. And time and time again, actually, everything Jesus did could point to this example. Through the insults and accusations that were thrown his way, he didn't counter his accusers with insults. He didn't, he didn't curse them. He didn't retaliate. Nor did he use the power that was available to him to inflict pain. Instead, he endured excruciating, excruciating agony for those who persecuted him. So that the door for salvation would be open to them. Even in his dying breath, he prayed for the forgiveness of the very people who were at that time crucifying him. What a ministry. Love and not retribution. So how are we being challenged this morning? Have we hardened our hearts towards some of those we're called to love because of their life choices? Because Jesus didn't. Are we out of touch with those that we're ministering to? Jesus wasn't. Is there a prompt for us to be more intentional in connecting with those that we're ministering to. Jesus consistently went out of his way. In our ministry, we, have we discounted or disregarded the power of the Almighty God who reveals it to us even today by signs and wonders? Maybe our response is to receive John chapter 14, verse 12, when he says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. Maybe fear of opposition prevents us from effective ministry. We need to know that Jesus has given us all we need. Whatever it is, remember that he goes with you, and not only that, but he goes with you in power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider your ministry for, for a moment, we think of the humble beginning. And we think of the incredibly personal way that you ministered. Yeah, there were moments where you spoke to the 5,000s and you gave them amazing word. But just that scripture in, verse, in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believed in him will not perish but have eternal life. That scripture delivered in the darkness one night between you and a Pharisee. 
so intimate. God, I thank you that you still minister to us that, that intimately. God, in the stillness as we seek you. Father, would you be the ultimate influencer of our ministry? God, would you help us to love those that we struggle to love? God, would you help us to be able to connect with those that we wouldn't necessarily usually connect with? God, because you did. Father, help us to accept, to accept that your power is a thing. Lord, the signs and wonders that you display that, that are still on display today, Father, the way that you answer prayer is still a thing. God, you come mightily and you come in power. And actually, you use it for your glory and to extend your to build your church. And so God, I think, I think you'd like to show us even more now. And so Father, would you embolden us? You said all we need is the faith of a mustard seed and maybe that's all we've got. But God, that's enough for you to move mountains. Go with us this week, Lord, as we, as we try to, to minister to your people, just as you did. In Jesus' name, amen.